The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so this morning we're reading the Ten Commandments, everyone's favorite part of the Bible, right? Nothing warms your heart like the story of the Ten Commandments. Um, but they are a crucial, crucial part of the Old Testament for us to understand because what happens from here on out, all the, the laws that are given, all of the, the ways that the Israelites work to govern their lives, those are all really just interpreting and expanding on the Ten Commandments. All the laws are doing is giving the Israelites the detail they need to apply the Ten Commandments to all sorts of daily life situations, which means it all boils down to this in Exodus 21 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do your labor. And do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love it in the end when the people are like standing really far back. Like, no, no, you go over there. We, you, right? My, my grandfather used to have cows, and they had an electric fence. One of his cows figured out that she could push the other cows into the fence to see if it was on. <laughs> and if it wasn't on, then she would lead the stampede. But, like, first she'd put, this, that's what this reminds me of. Like, okay, Moses, you go and see if it's safe, and then we'll, we'll hang back here. And if you, you know, we'll see if the lightning comes down and strikes you first as you go up to talk to God. Um, that has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. I just think it's funny. Um, <laughs> Notice that, that nowhere in the text are these referred to as the Ten Commandments. That's something that we kind of came in and added later. They're not called that in the book. In fact, the way that they're written, they look as much like definitions as they do like commands. And I mean, they're definitely commands, right? You shall or you shall not don't really leave a whole lot of wiggle room. They're, they're pretty clear. But there's more emphasis on explaining the command than enforcing it. Something that gets overlooked a lot is that these commands would not have been addressed to every individual Israelite. These are for the men who are the heads of the household, the people who have authority over other people. Because a lot of what the commands have to say deal with temptations that would have been faced mainly by the head of the family in a society that's set up this way. So God starts by defining the relationship, right? I remember when I was in college, that was a big deal, right? If you started dating a girl, you needed to like sit down and define the relationship. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of those things that, to me, it just seemed like, you know, duh, you should do this. I didn't, I didn't realize that people were dating each other and not actually talking about whether they were, you know, serious or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And so on our, on our first date, when I, when I sat down at the coffee shop downtown with Mercedes, we, like, one of the first things I said was, look, you know, I, I'm dating because I want to get married. So I'm, I'm looking for someone who I, I think could be my wife. And, and so I'm, I'm taking this seriously. And that was the first conversation we had on our first date. And, you know, um, people, I tell that story, people think, that's crazy. How could you, I mean, 12 years later, here we are. Um, so it may be crazy, but it works. So God, God starts by defining the relationship he's going to have with the people of Israel. He's the one who saved them. He's the one who brought them out of slavery. So he's got every right to set all these following expectations. And the first expectation he has is that if they're going to continue to be his people, they're going to have an exclusive relationship with their God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now what's interesting is that that doesn't deny that the other gods are real, which is kind of strange to us. It denies Israel the right to treat them as gods. But the Old Testament is strange about this because it tends to demote other gods rather than deny, deny them. It, it treats them as lesser gods or lesser beings um, until you get to like the prophets and the Psalms. 
And once you get there, there's this pretty clear understanding that actually these things other people are worshiping aren't even real. They're just things made of wood and stone that have no meaning. Um, and by the time you get to the New Testament, actually the Apostle Paul is totally convinced that these idols that other people are bowing down to are in fact demons, that they've been led astray by demons, not even other gods. So the, but, but at this point, the very beginning of the story, God is less concerned with explaining to them that these are not even real gods or that they're false gods or that they're demons. He just wants them to understand, don't even be tempted to look that way. God wants to make sure they understand whatever you think these things are, it doesn't matter. You worship me and me alone. And he knows that they are going to be faced with the temptation to bow down to these idols. Because they're going to move into Canaan. And they're going to live next door to the Canaanites. Now the book of Joshua, when you get to it, talks about how they wiped out everybody, but that's hyperbole. They don't do that. They drive them out of major cities, they drive them out of some areas, but they still are in the land. God knows that's going to happen, and so he takes pains to tell them, look, you're going to be living with these people, they're going to have gods that they worship, and you are going to be tempted to worship those gods. Because they're going to have a god for everything. They're going to have a god for the rain, for the sun, for the, for the water. They're going to have a god for the crops. They're going to have a god that will help you have, promise to help you have babies. All of everything in life that you want, there will be a god for it. And what's going to happen is you're going to get to a point in your life where you're not getting this thing that's really important, where your crops aren't coming up like you thought they would, when it hasn't rained as much as you know it needs to rain, when your livestock are sick, when your wife can't get pregnant, and you're going to be tempted to go and pray to these other gods because it's going to seem to you like I'm not listening. And your neighbor over here who is not an Israelite is going to tell you about the God that they worship whose only job is to make sure that their wife can have babies or that it rains on their crops. And you're going to look at what they have. And you're going to be tempted. And this is one of those things that is especially tempting for the heads of the household. The one who determines who everyone else in the family worships. The one who, in their eyes, bears the responsibility for ensuring that all of those things happen smoothly. The people you, they live next to will have gods for all of these things. They will even have gods for keeping in touch with their dead relatives so they can keep accessing the wisdom of their ancestors. And God says to the people of Israel, no, you will rely on me for all of these things, no matter what. And you're just going to have to trust that I've got it under control, even if it doesn't look that way to you. And that will turn out to be one of the most difficult commands for them to follow. Partly because it's wildly countercultural. They are the only people in the world for most of human history who only believe in one God. Everyone else around them says, no, no, no. You've got a God for this, and you've got a God for this, and you've got a God for this, and this city has this God, and this city has this God. And if you go and travel to that city, the first thing you do is you go and make that city's God happy that you're there so you don't, you don't anger that city's God. All kinds of crazy, intricate rules that make total sense to the people who believe them. And it's going to trip Israel up time and time and time again. But this is the command. You have no other gods before me. I'm it. I can provide for all your needs. I can do all the things that you need me to do but you're going to have to have faith and not go astray.
They're even forbidden from making statues to help them worship. And this is also really countercultural in their time because every temple has a statue of the God in it. People like to have something visible to help them worship, right? That's why we've got the cross right up there. But an inanimate object can never be a true representative of the living, speaking, active God. Which means worshiping with the help of a statue is, in effect, worshiping a different God. God rescued them from Egypt, and they are not free to serve other gods. And if they do, the consequences for not just them, but for their families are very severe, right? That's kind of how family life works, isn't it? If, if one person in the family is doing something and messes up in a serious way, it has ripple effects, we understand in the modern world the sort of generational consequences of, of I don't want to say bad behavior because that seems to minimize it, but if you've got someone in the family, a, a father, a grandfather who struggles with an addiction or, or is constantly in and out of jail, odds are good that that pattern will repeat. We understand in things like that that can be explained away without resorting to things like sin or religion that these things have generational consequences. But it turns out it happens with all sorts of sin. If the head of the household turns and worships other gods, God knows it will lead that whole family astray for generations. And this whole part of the Ten Commandments points back to Genesis in a way. Because we are the image of God. God himself has already crafted the image of himself that he wants to exist in his temple. Anything we try to make is going to fall short. Now, taking God's name in vain. This is my favorite one, because no one ever really knows what it means. The commandment about taking God's name in vain can be summarized like this. Don't associate things with God that don't actually have anything to do with God. Right? There are lots of ways this could be done. Right? You could do this by fighting a war without being prompted by God to do so and then calling it God's war, which is something the Israelites will actually do a few times and they get in quite a bit of trouble for it. They could do it by appointing whatever government they want and calling it God's government or making their own decisions and calling them God's decisions. It's a lot more far-reaching than just uh, forbidding us from saying, oh my God, right? Don't do that either, <laughs> just to be on the safe side. But it's a lot more serious than that. It means we, we ought to, before we ever proclaim that something happening out in the world is God's will or God's justice, we ought to be really sure before we do that. Because doing that wrongly is exactly the sort of thing that the Bible warns us about. You can think back to 2005 when Katrina hit New Orleans and plenty of people were on TV and in the media saying, well, this is, this is God's judgment upon the city of New Orleans. Let me tell you something, that was taking God's name in vain. And I would not want to be those people when they had to explain to God why they did that. The Sabbath is a bit of a tricky one. We read it as, okay, day of rest. Right? No, we get weekends. So we're like, yeah, okay, big whoop, right? But that wasn't a thing in the ancient world, right? You worked every day because the work you were doing was subsistence farming. You worked every day because you only ate what you grew or what livestock you raised. The work never stopped because your family always needs food. Now, even today, if you know people who are farmers or ranchers, you know the work does not stop, no matter what. There's always something that has to be done. 
And these are not people who are depending entirely on their own crops to eat, right? Archaeologists think that on average, the average Israelite family for three months out of the year, every year, did not have enough food to eat. That's not like three months altogether. It's three months of days you know, scattered throughout the year. But it meant for about a third of the time, they did not have enough food to eat. And God is telling those people, listen, for one day out of the week, you're not going to work. You're not going to go out in your fields. You're not going to tend to your livestock. If a wolf comes and takes your sheep, you're not going to do anything about it. And you're not going to send your children out to work. If you have hired servants, they're not going to go out to work. If your hired servants are from a foreign land and aren't Jews, they still can't work. No loophole. You can't even have your livestock lashed to the plow or to the grain mill. No one's working. All work will cease for one day. That is, that's like agricultural suicide. Most of us really can't fathom the level of trust in God that will be required for those people to actually stop the work for a day. Because quite apart from all the routine stuff that has to be done, there's all the, always the possibility that you'll be in your house on the Sabbath day and you'll see a fire out in the field. Or you'll see a predator coming for your livestock. Or a fence will break and your livestock will get free. Guess what? It's the Sabbath. You can't do anything about it. You just have to watch it happen. And trust that God will make sure you're okay. The Sabbath day, yes, it's about rest. It's about not overworking. But at the core of that whole idea of encouraging his people to rest, to not overwork themselves, is the idea that you can trust in God to provide for you. The idea that however hard you work, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are at your job, no matter what you do, everything you have comes from God and goes back to God. And you are not so important that if you stop working, it will be a disaster. You can rest and trust that all of this is in God's hands. Then the householder, the male head of the house, has to honor his parents. Now, when I was growing up, this is always used as like, you better listen to your parents and be obedient because the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And I can't wait to tell my parents how wrong they were. Um, <laughs> it's not what it's about. This is literally a command that the head of the household has to take care of his parents. Because you've got to think, if you're the head of the household, that means that your parents are now old enough that they can't work. They are no longer contributing to the household economy. They're a drain on your resources. And again, you're living in a world where you only eat what you grow, and for three months out of the year, you don't have enough food. But you have extra mouths to feed who aren't going to contribute anything to the workload. He's required to care for them, to support them, to include them in the family. The family is the basic unit of Israelite society. It's crucial for how God intends for this whole project to work. Failing to honor your parents puts the whole family structure in danger and therefore puts the whole society of Israel in danger. 
the entire command is about honoring and caring for those who cared for you so that you reciprocate. Which means for people in the modern world, we have to think about how we honor and care for our parents. Even if we weren't very obedient children, even if we don't particularly like our parents, we still have to honor them and care for them. And the, all the rest of the commandments, by the way, I mean, I don't think I need to spend much time on thou shalt not murder. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, right? Thou shalt not kill. You know, pretty self-explanatory. Don't commit adultery. Also, hopefully, pretty self-explanatory. Um, if not, we'll talk later. Um, but most of the rest of the commandments boil down to this. Be content with what you have and trust that things will be okay. Be content with what you have and trust that things will be okay. Your neighbor's wife may be better at managing the household. His ox may be stronger. His servants may work harder, but be content with what you have and trust that it will be okay. And boy, is that a universal rule, right? Be content with what you have and trust that it will work out in the end. Right? Your neighbors may have a bigger house, nicer car, higher paying job. Be content with what you have and trust that it will be okay. This is Israel's rule of life. These are the governing principles that are meant to shape how they do everything. It establishes the basic points. You have one God, no others. You are the image of God, so don't try to cheapen God or yourself by making a lesser image. The God of Israel can provide for all of your needs. Focus on God's will and conform your life to that instead of trying to conform God to your will. Make sure everyone in your household is provided for and be content with what God has given you. And you may notice all those things actually apply to us as well. Don't ever let anyone tell you the Old Testament is not relevant because the morality of the Old Testament is never changed in the New Testament. Each commandment corresponds to a common temptation. We're tempted to worship other gods. And in all reality, we today are still tempted to worship the same false gods that people in biblical times were, were tempted to worship. Aphrodite, Mars, and Mammon, the gods of sex, war, and power, and money. Still the same three gods people are tempted to bow down and worship. We don't name them as gods anymore. But that is who most people in the world today are worshiping. We're tempted to turn to those gods to meet our needs instead of trusting in the real God. We're tempted to reject God's wisdom and guidance, substitute our own, and then slap God's name on it so that we can feel better about it. And we're certainly tempted to covet, to not be content with what God has given us. So instead of treating this as a list of rules and then struggling not to break them, treat this as the definition of how to live a good life. You want to be happy? Live according to these ten principles. You want your marriage to be strong? Start here. You want your faith to be strong? Start here. You want to feel less anxious about the next election cycle? Start here. In fact, you can just call them the Ten Principles for now instead of the Ten Commandments if that helps you understand what they're really for because that's what they actually are. These are the principles that lead to a good life, a holy life, and a meaningful life. If you organize your life around these principles, you'll be better off. And that's not to say you won't ever face difficulty and it's not a guarantee of prosperity. And in fact, part of the point of learning to be content with what you have is specifically to learn that you don't need to chase prosperity in order to be happy. Now, I told the kids I'd give you homework. 
I am. I'm going to challenge you this week. I'm going to challenge you to actually evaluate your life based on these 10 principles. To really think about whether or not you are living your life according to them or not. To think about what idols you may have bowed down to. To think about what you've been coveting or who you've been coveting, maybe. To think about how far you're willing to trust in God to provide for you. But don't let yourself fall into the trap of, of legalism. Don't, don't beat yourself up if you find that you haven't been falling short of the mark because this isn't about going on a guilt trip because God has grace for all of us. This is about consciously deciding to live your life in the way God himself has described as the best possible way to live. Which is, of course, exactly the way that Jesus lived. These are the same principles that Jesus built his life around, and he summed them all up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's go and do likewise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.